Good morning. We are in lesson 10 of our series in the book of uh, Judges. I've been toying with titles, but at this point, let's just call it When Government is God's Judgment. And we're, uh, I'm going to shorten the text. I know I had to make Greg suffer all uh, week to think that he was going to read uh, 60 verses this morning. And I, I let him off the hook because l- last night I said to myself, there's just no way we're going to do this and cover all the details. Uh, and so we've uh, shortened down uh, considerably and we'll stop at verse 21. And Lord willing, next week we'll pick up uh, from there. I probably should uh, put my disclaimer in right here. I know that in in many households when Thanksgiving comes around, they agree that they will not talk about a couple of things. One is uh, religion and the other is politics. And this is both. And I don't really know how to to escape the, the realities of our text But I think it's probably a good thing to say to you that uh, as I've struggled with this, I have not uh, run by all of my words uh, by the elders and gotten their approval. So I think it would only be fair to say to you that the elders, as in past days, uh, will uh, have granted me the freedom to speak my mind, but it may not be theirs. And so I think I ought to put you on notice about about that fact. I I think that you just can't avoid the political ramifications, but but let me say a couple of things. While Abimelech is certainly the most corrupt uh, government that Israel has ever known to this to this point, it would only be fair to say that uh, the, uh, the, the one spokesman against them, Jotham, is a man who does not call the nation to arms. He does not call for radical action. He speaks the truth. And in this context, he leaves town. <laughs> I don't have that freedom. But he speaks the truth. And I think that's what Christians need to do at a time where government steps over lines that the Bible says ought not to be crossed. And and so I I hope to do that. I hope not to speak about a particular person. I hope not to speak about a particular party because, frankly, my concerns are with government in general in our country, and I fear that some of the things that are taking place that are unbiblical clearly cross party lines. So having said all of that, by the way, introductions are supposed to get your attention. So if that hasn't spooked you enough to get on the edge of your seat, there's nothing I could have said this morning that would have done it. But let's take a, a quick look at, uh, at what our text is about. Do you remember that Gideon uh, dies? And, and uh, I have to say this. I, as, as I look at this uh, text back in chapter 8, and, and it basically, uh, the Net Bible s- translates it, and, and Gideon settles down. <laughs> and he says, and he has 70 sons and many wives, and I'm thinking, man, I don't call that settling down. <laughs> Can you imagine what that's like? I think Gideon must have said to himself, oh, if I could only be out there facing those 135,000 Midianites again. It's these kids that are killing me. But anyway, Gideon... 
settles down to family life, has many wives, and as you know, many sons. But when he dies, then Israel turns in their disobedience, and as chapter 2 has indicated, to an even worse condition of unbelief. And they have chosen now to put their faith in, in Baal Barith, the God of the covenant. What a, what a very interesting statement to make. And they have turned from the God of Israel. They have forgotten that every deliverance that has happened in their life and experience and in Israel's history has been a deliverance wrought by the hand of God and none other. They've forgotten God and they have turned to this other God. And the text tells us that they have also not done rightly uh, by Gideon's family as time has passed on. So one, one son, the son of the concubine, who, whose uh, his mother lives in Shechem, uh, Abimelech goes and he seeks the throne for himself. He fast talks his relatives and they persuade the people of the city of Shechem, the town of Shechem, to embrace uh, Abimelech as their king. And, uh, and you remember that after doing that, he then kills off all of his brothers, except one, Jotham, the youngest, who escapes. And he establishes himself, the people of the city, uh, establish him as their king. When word reaches Jotham, the survivor, he goes up on Mount Gerizim and he calls out to the uh, people of Shechem, and he speaks the words of blessing and cursing, interestingly, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And he, uh, and he says to them, in, in effect, if you have done justly, if you have done rightly by installing Abimelech as your king, and if you have done rightly by Gideon's descendants, his family, then may you be blessed, and may he be blessed. But if you've done wrong, and that's where he has his little parenthesis that we'll look at, said, remember all that my father has done, and remember what you have done. And he says, uh, if, if you have done wrong, then may God bring, in effect, a curse upon you and upon Abimelech. And then he speaks about fire coming forth from the people of Shechem that will destroy Abimelech and, and fire coming forth from Abimelech that will do uh, justice and destroy the people of Shechem. And then he runs and he escapes. Now, that's as far as we're going to go in, in our text this morning. But you know then that God providentially works, creates a spirit of animosity and hostility between the people of Shechem and uh, Abimelech. And there will be events that will take place that will culminate in the destruction of Shechem and in the death of Abimelech. And that will be the subject of our, uh, of our message for next week. But let's take a, now a look at the setting because I think it's very, very important to understand this as we, uh, as we look at this text from uh, verses 29 actually through verse 35. Jerubbabel goes home from battle. He has many wives, many sons. One concubine has a son named Abimelech in Shechem, and then he dies at a ripe old age and, and is buried. And then the text goes on to talk about 
how the Israelites turned to Baal Barith. Now that's where I want to f- focus for a moment. Remember where they are. They are in Shechem. <clears throat> now, does anybody have any rather recent memories? There are all kinds of things that have happened at Shechem <clears throat> with, uh, with Jacob, for example. Remember where uh, the fellow named Shechem, the, the mayor's daughter, uh, forcibly takes uh, Tamar and, and, and whatever, Dinah. And and uh, and and uh, and then there's the uh, incident where the sons of of Jacob kill the uh, the the people of the city and so on. Lots of interesting history that takes place, but the most interesting history that takes place is found in Joshua chapter 24, and we ought to remember that. Now keep in mind we're dealing with Shechem, and we're talking about the Israelites who now worship a god called Baal, Baal, of the covenant. And when the people flee, they're going to flee into the inner room of the temple, and it's the temple of El, God, of the covenant. And it is, this, is a, this, folks, is a new covenant. And I don't mean the new covenant. I mean a new covenant. It's not the covenant that God has made with his people Israel. It is the covenant that has now been entered into by the Israelites with this Canaanite God. And in effect, it seems to me, they have moved from adding other gods to the worship of the one true God, that they've sort of gone from polytheism almost to monotheism, but the God that they have come into covenant relationship with is the God Baal, not the God of Israel. Now, when you go back to Joshua chapter 24, which of course is taking place just before the book of Judges, you remember that in verse 1 it says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Shechem, the city that we're talking about in our text. Now drop down to verse 24. You remember that Joshua has said to the people of Israel, You came out of an idolatrous background. Your fathers and forefathers, your history in Egypt, you got idols everywhere you look. He says, now you're going to have to make a decision. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And the Israelites say, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to follow him. And he says, you're not able to do that. I'd be very careful about saying what you're going to do because you're not able to do that. So, oh yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. So in verse 24, we read, And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. The events that are going to take place when they make Abimelech king take place in Shechem by an oak. Now, I can't tell you for sure that that oak tree is the very one. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. What a difference a few years can make from that generation, previous generation of Israelites vowing to be faithful to God and not to the gods of the land. And here they are. Now they have a new God, the God Baal of the covenant that they have chosen to worship and to serve. And now they have a king. That's the setting 
that I see that takes place in our text. Now, Gideon, we say, uh, the text says, has many wives and a son. And, of course, it is that one son, the son of a concubine, a slave woman, so to speak, um, who is of most interest to our author because that is Abimelech, and he is the one who will uh, be made king over Israel. And Israel probably means the the town of Shechem and its environs uh, and not necessarily the whole nation. And, and so you have this, this, uh, this situation that comes up, and now the, the critical element will be when Abimelech uh, worms his way into, talks his way into kingship with these people of Shechem, and that we see in verses uh, 1 through 6. Oh, let me say one more thing back from those previous verses. They did not deal kindly with Gideon for all the good that he had done. What I want to say about that is this. We have a very small snippet of Gideon's life. And, and, and frankly, we tend to focus on that last element where Gideon makes this ephod, this golden ephod, and all Israel worships it there at Ophrah. You know, it's a really bad scenario. But what we need to understand is even bad kings... Even bad dictators do good things, and that's one of the reasons they stay in power. But, but here, I think what we need to recognize is our text is not telling us every particular aspect of Gideon's life. There were good things that he did for the nation, and in God's eyes, he should have been respected And his heirs should have been dealt with kindly because of the good that he did. And they have forgotten all of that. We tend to focus on the bad that he has done, and rightly so. But let's not forget, there is good, because God said there was, and they did not honor Gideon for that good. Okay, notice in the the historical account, not the parable, that, that uh, is going to be told here by Jotham. But in the historical account, it is Abimelech who takes the initiative. You've got Gideon is dead. There are, in effect, 70 heirs to the throne. I think, I hope I've convinced you that while Gideon said, neither will I be your king nor my sons, but God will rule over you, there's indications that, uh, that in reality, Gideon uh, allowed the benefits of kingship to come his way. And the fact is the people of Israel assume that one of his descendants or all of them will be king over them. That's the assumption that's, that's operated on in our text. And uh, Abimelech wants to get the jump on his, uh, on his rivals, and so he goes to the, uh, to the family uh, that is there in, in Shechem, and he plays the family card. I am your brother. The word brother occurs 14 times in this text, interesting, in, in, in the whole chapter, uh, chapter 9. So it's a very significant. Sometimes translations will render it relatives and whatever, but almost always it's brothers uh, that, that is uh, referred to, and I think probably significantly so. So he goes to Shechem. He appeals to his, uh, to his mother's brothers, it says, and he appeals on the basis of, of two family lines. He appeals on the basis of his father's line, Gideon's, because Gideon is the one through whom the kingship would come. 
So he wants to say, in effect, I'm the heir to being king. I'm one of the heirs to being king. He also wants to appeal to his mother's side because the people of Shechem are, are, are in a sense, relatives. That's the family, the clan uh, that he's a part of. And so he's trying to convince them because I'm a family member, I'm going to look out for you. Now, you have to keep in mind 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Israel demands a king. And one of the things that God says to Israel that, that, that uh, is supposed to be said to Samuel, is supposed to say to Israel is, look, you need to understand the high cost of government, of central government. When you get a government, it's going to tax you. It's going to take your prime property. It's going to take your men for warriors and servants, your, your maid servants. Uh, it's going to take the best of those. It's going to cost you big time. And the Israelites basically said, we'll pay our taxes. Well, little did they know how bad it would be and that they would cry out. But there, there were these elements. So the other thing that happens, if you have a man who has that much power, who gets the property and who gets all the goodies? The relatives, right? The people who are on the king's side are going to get the best of the blessings. So what he's saying in effect is, I'm, I'm, I'm running for king. If I become the king, then I, as your relative, are going to see to it you get taken care of. Pork barrel politics. And, and so people have said, well, that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, it's going to be somebody. Might as well be uh, our, our boy Abimelech. So he asked his relatives to go and speak to the leaders of the city on his behalf. Remember, he's gone just to his family. Now it's the family who goes about soliciting support for Abimelech to be acknowledged as the king uh, over Shechem. And here's his argument. Better one king than many. Now that sounds good, but is it really true? Better to place the power and authority, absolute control in one man's hands, or better to distribute it amongst many. Uh, I, I think you'd have to say that uh, it may be better to spread it out. And I would simply add, if you say to yourself, 70 people, 70 people, boy, that's an awful lot of people. Does the number 70 ring any bells in your mind? Well, there's going to be several things. 70 pieces of silver, that ought to ring a bell. It's coming right up in our text. You know, and of course, the 70 sons. But do you remember in Exodus chapter 18 when, when Moses is, is a workaholic and his father-in-law Jethro says, man, you, you need some help. And then you remember in the book of Numbers where 70 men are selected and the Spirit of God comes upon them so that Israel in its ideal days, was ruled by 70 judges. And it didn't work that badly. And so here's a guy saying 70 is just too many. Well, if they had any sense of history, they'd say, too many? We've been doing this for a long time. It wasn't so many after, after all. And then better a relative than another, a stranger. I'll look out for you. The thing I think that troubles me most about this is Shechem's complicity. And, and while Abimelech is the bad boy, what this text does is it really focuses more on, it, on, on Shechem and its evils and complicity in this, its part that it plays. Uh, and while Abimelech will get what's his, so will the people of Shechem. And that means 
They are responsible because they have said, sounds like a good plan to us, so they've given him, Abimelech, their favor. They've also given him their finances, and this is where it starts to smell. Where does the, where does the funding for his political campaign, where does it come from? It comes from the temple of the false god. They are funding Abimelech out of heathen funds. And how many funds does he get? Seventy pieces of silver. Now, I have to tell you, I guess I'm a cynic, and so I look at the dark side of this whole thing, but I say to myself, seventy sons, seventy pieces of silver. Do you think those people of Shechem didn't know what they were doing? They were saying, we got 70 sons to bump off. If he's going to be the king, we got to get rid of the competition. 70 sons to bump off, that's 70 pieces of silver. And we got to have some thugs to do it, right? So it's like the mafia moves in, and they become the, the top guys uh, with Abimelech. And, and, and these 70 sons now, and I guess it would be, it keeps saying 70 in the text. I, I'm assuming it's 69. Because Jotham, if, if Jotham was, was number 70, he survived. And that means that Abimelech, I guess, was number 71. But ballpark terms, 70. They're all slaughtered on the same stone. Now, I don't know why, twice in the text, it tells us that. They're all slaughtered at the same stone. What is that? Well, I'm not sure I want to ponder that thought very long. But would you, would you not agree with me that, that, that what happens is if you had a camera that was fixed on that stone, then what's happening is one son's brought, he's executed. Almost like a sacrificial animal would be executed for a sacrifice. And, and his blood, maybe his body's hauled off, but his blood's on that stone. Number two's drug in. I mean, that stone is a mighty ugly place by the time it's over. It's a very sinister scene. That's what I'm trying to say. This is an ugly, ugly thing. And the people of Shechem have, have managed to keep themselves in the background. But folks, they chose to side with Abimelech. They chose to finance Abimelech. And I believe they did so knowing that those 70 sons were going to have to be executed. These guys have blood on their hands. And if we don't believe it, we just have to look. God is going to judge them as harshly as he does Abimelech because they are co-conspirators in this whole event. But how neat it was that Abimelech could hire his thugs to do the dirty work so that they didn't actually have to do it themselves. Nor perhaps Abimelech. I don't know where he fit in all that. But the people of Shechem are able to enjoy the benefits but somehow keep their distance from all the dirty work that's, that's taking place. This is the point at which Jotham, the one who has escaped, the youngest brother, he now comes out and uh, he comes on the scene when he hears of the coronation of Abimelech. And he comes out and he stands on Mount Gerizim. Now, I, w- I want, if you will, put the Mount Gerizim slide up. It's the next one. But I want you to look at this. All right, on the lower left is Mount Gerizim, the lower hill to the left, and to the lower right is Mount Ebal. Now, do you remember what Moses told the Israelites they were supposed to do when they got into the land? 
They were to take, there was, a, there was a covenant that was made, and so it, it apparently was true that there was actually something in written form that was placed there. But you remember that, that half of the tribes would gather on Mount Gerizim, the other half would, would, would uh, gather on Mount Ebal, and they would call out the blessings and the cursings, right? Of the law. Now, what is the essence of what Jotham is going to say. It's blessing and cursing, isn't it? If indeed you have done this in integrity and justice, be blessed. If you have not, in effect, be burned. That's what's going to take place. This, this thing is, is a most uh, serious uh, offense that they have done. So what you see then is Shechem... If you were to look here, and I'm not sure I can, t- I can pinpoint where it is. Oh, isn't this great, this Google stuff? I love it. Anyway, right down in the center of that valley is going to be Shechem. So what you see is that just like the Israelites had gone, and they did this under Joshua, just as the Israelites had divided up and, and called out the blessings and, and the cursings. And by the way, Mount Gerizim is the blessing side. Interestingly, <laughs> if I were Jotham, I'd have climbed up and been speaking from Mount Ebal myself. But he's saying, you would be blessed if this were done in integrity. So here he is. He stands there and he calls out across the valley so that the people can now hear what he has to say. And he tells this story. He says that there were trees. And these trees decided that they wanted somebody to reign over them. And so these trees went out and they sought for somebody. By the way, it's really interesting to see. When the request is made, the request is made that, that these trees would, the selected trees would rule over them. When the response is made, the turndown response by the first three, they don't say rule, they say wave. And it seems to me that these trees are smarter than a lot of other folks in the sense that they're saying, why would I do the wave? You know, you know, like what's, what's so great about waving one tree, waving over the others? It's ridiculous. Well, anyway, so these trees, they, they first of all go to the olive tree and, and they ask the olive tree, will you be the one who rules over us? And the olive tree says, no way. And then they, they go to the fig tree. Will you be the tree that rules over us? No way. Then they go, not to the tree, but to the vine, the grapevine. Now, folks, if you want to get under something for shade, I mean, it's a long way from a tree to a vine, right? And, and, and the shade's not so good. It's not really so great. And they say to the vine, will you rule over us? And the vine says, no. No, i got better things to do than that. And then they go to the thorn bush. And, and I was trying to think about this. In our terms, I think what I'd say is it's Texas tumbleweed with thorns. Okay? So you know about how much value that thing has. It doesn't produce fruit. It just gets in the way. And if you get too close to it, you get scratched and stickered. And if it gets nice and dry, you can burn it. But it's worthless. It's worthless. So they come to this bramble bush, this thorn bush, and they say, Will you rule over us? And that's when the, when the thorn bush says, Well, yeah, uh, if you guys will uh, submit to me, then you can come in my shade. How shady is a, is a, 
you know, a, a tumbleweed? Not very. Not a really great offer. If you don't, you'll suffer. That's what he said. You're going to suffer. If you don't submit to me, you'll pay. So here's his, his offer. So that's the, that's the setting that, that has been uh, put forth. And, and Jotham now tells the story. And I want to make some observations about that story if I can. One, it's addressed primarily to the people of Shechem, not to Abimelech. It's spoken to the people of Shechem for their complicity and involvement in making Abimelech their king. Now, I'm not sure whether he hopes that there is a chance of of repentance on their part, but it seems to me that at least that's uh, in the realm of possibilities. Two, notice that the trees want a ruler over them. Now, if you go back and read the historical account, it looks like it's only Abimelech who wants to rule. What you see, I call this a marriage made in hell, is when you have a man who wants to be a dictator and you have a people who want to be dictated to, then it's pretty easy and quick for those two to come together. And so when he tells the parable, he tells it in terms of, remember, these are the people of Shechem. He said, you really wanted a king. Now, we know that's true, do we not? From chapter 8, verse 22. They said to Gideon, hey man, you did a good job. Be our king and let your kids be king after you. Have a dynasty. And Gideon said no and acted more like a yes. But the people wanted what Abimelech had to offer. The trees are listed in order of their usefulness. Now, I don't want to press this too far, but it seems to me that in that that place, olive oil, olives and olive oil, would probably be highest in, in the level of what you had. I mean, if you had oil and you have grain, then you can have biscuits and, you know, all those kinds of things. You don't usually squeeze figs that I know of for fig oil to cook in. And so, you know, figs are great eating, but, but they're sort of down the food chain in my book. So you start with the olive tree, you go down to the fig tree, and, and then you go to the, to the grapevine. It's nice. Uh, and then finally... Uh, you go to the, the bramble or the thorn bush, which has absolutely no value at all. The fruitful trees decline, and I want you to notice why. This is very interesting, and, I, and, and, and some have a little difference as to how much you're going to read into this. They decline on the basis of their usefulness. See, what makes an olive tree of value is that that olive tree produces olives. And those olives are beneficial to people. And so it basically says, in being an olive tree, rather than a dictator and a leader over all these people, by being an olive tree, I may be a source of blessing. That's where my usefulness comes. Why would I give up my usefulness and my beneficial contribution to wave over people? (laughs) It's like, you're kidding me? And, And then you go to the to the uh, a fig tree, and basically you get the same thing, and then the, the uh, vine, the grapevine, and basically, again, it's what I produce by being a grapevine is valuable to people. The assumption is if I were a dictator, I wouldn't be of value, and certainly if you were a dictator like Abimelech, that would be exactly true. You would offer no positive contribution, and that becomes all too apparent uh, too quickly. 
So the thorn bush is good for scratching and burning. And by the way, Psalm 58, 9, it talks about the pot that is being heated over uh, the, the same uh, thorn bush that is being burned because it is dried up now and is being burned for firewood. It's interesting then, isn't it? The thorn bush, in a sense, is only good for burning. So what will the judgment be? As Jotham tells it, fire is going to come out. Fire is going to come out of the thorn bush, but it's not going to be the kind of fire you really want to, you want to have if you're the people of Shechem. So he offers little, and he has the threat for those who would not submit. Now, let's look at Jotham in, in, in terms of the essence of his message and the example that he sets. If we stop here at verse 21, which we're going to do, then it seems to me that Jotham... Uh, not the woman with the millstone. By the way, I love Dale Ralph, Ralph Davis. It took me a second. Even me, it took a, a minute when he talked about the woman who had a crush on Abimelech. Now, he said it, not me. Don't blame, don't blame me. But, but you have to say, she's the hero of the whole story. Once again, almost like, like you have jail with her tent peg. But as far as we read, is it not Jotham? who is the man who sets the example. If you want to see how one ought to respond when a government is corrupt and oppressive, what do you do? Well, Jotham speaks the truth. Uh, and, And so he is the example, I think. And the essence of what he does is for Israel's benefit. It seems to me, if possible, he would hope for Israel's repentance. He speaks of God and he speaks for God. And there's not a whole lot of that going on ever since Gideon's success uh, has occurred. He speaks of blessing or cursing. And to me, I, I, I just seems to me, here is a guy who has a great, profound sense of history. Does he not? Here, I mean, I grant you that if you're going to speak to the people of Shechem, there's not too many hills around you can holler from. But, but... It just seems to me that when he goes up there, and he, here he is uh, on, on the mountain, uh, and, and, he's, and he's crying forth, he does so with a clear remembrance of what the, Mount Gerizim and what Mount Ebal meant, and, their, and then their role in Israel's history. So here he is standing on the mountain. The irony of it is that it's Mount Gerizim who is the mountain from which blessings were pronounced. It's Mount Ebal that is the mountain from which the cursings were blessed. Is it possible that what he is saying is, if you heed this message and repent, God's blessings are still possible? I don't know. But he has a sense, in my opinion, he has a sense of the history, and it is no wonder that he speaks this parable and its application in the context of blessing or cursing from the very place from which that would have been done by, uh, by Moses' instruction and by uh, uh, Joshua and the Israelites in just a few years past. Unlike Gideon, this is a critical one, unlike Gideon, Jotham does not seek vengeance. Now, remember I said to you that the word brother occurs 14 times in chapter 9? Do you not remember that in, in chapter 8, it was this whole thing that, that somehow Gideon had in his mind, and we didn't know it until late in the event, that part of the reason he was so persistent in pursuing the Midianite kings deep into Midianite territory 
The reason why he was so harsh in dealing with fellow Israelites is because these two kings were responsible for the death of his brothers, and he was going to make them pay. I see with Gideon a spirit of vengeance that says, I'm going to make this wrong right. And in so doing, he puts his own people and himself at risk. Here is Jotham, who sees, I, I don't think that Gideon had 70 brothers. And, 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 and his brothers were killed in war. Here is Jotham's brothers, who were killed as innocent victims. They were not guilty of any crime. Their only guilt was to be the son of Gideon. They were killed, 70 of them, but Jotham is willing to leave judgment with God. But he speaks God's warning of judgment to these people as the opportunity, I think, for them to repent. So his words are not only a curse, and that's what they're called at the end of chapter 9, but they're a prophecy. Because what he says is, if you have done this unjustly, then may fire come forth from Shechem and destroy Abimelech. And may fire come forth from Abimelech and destroy Shechem. So in a sense, these two people who have come into this this, uh, uh, evil alliance in order to achieve what they see as their best interest are the very people who are going to orchestrate each other's destruction. Isn't that ironic? They thought the other would be their blessing and their other will be the the downfall uh, of of each. And that God will do providentially uh, in our text for next week. Okay, lessons to be learned. So we better, uh, I'll try to tread this ground um, carefully. Judgment comes from within. Now here's the new twist. Here's the new twist. Up to this point in time, Israel's sin has been the result of outside influence. You remember that because of Gideon, they, they, they worship the ephod so that it's Gideon himself who has been the source of corruption. Although there still seems to be restraint under Gideon, it's only after his death that they now turn to this God of the covenant and they, and they fully devote themselves to him. But now what you have is not the oppression of, of Midianites or Canaanites from a distance or Philistines. You have oppression coming from the government of the Israelites themselves. Now oppression is inward, not outward. It has gone uh, that far. Taking the place of God brings judgment. And that was exactly, I think, what happened. By the way, when you look in the prophecies in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, and you look at, uh, at the Babylonians and, and all of the, the condemnation that falls upon them, it's they become godlike. Uh, they become Satan-like and want to become godlike. They want to be worshipped as God. And Satan's hand and footprint, fingerprints are, are all over that. Taking place, the place of God brings judgment. Plurality and leadership is better with one exception. If you look throughout history, when you have absolute power in the hands of one, it always goes south. Look what happened to David. David began 
to, to think of himself as the absolute. If he wants the wife of another man, he takes it. He gives orders, they get followed, especially by a guy like Joab. But absolute power corrupts. That's, that's no mystery. We know that. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you can't put too much power in the hands of one. And, and let me just say this. This is a beautiful truth in the church. It's no wonder that God has the church ruled by a plurality of elders. Central authority that's always focused in one person is just going to go south. It's bad enough with, with distributed power, but it's bad with a centrality of leadership. There's one exception, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one. Remember in John 13, it says, just as he's ready to wash the feet of the disciples, it says, Jesus knowing that all things were in his hand, that God had given him all authority. He sets aside, as it were, the symbol of that authority, and he goes around and he washes his disciples' feet. Because Jesus didn't have the corruption that we see in men when it comes to power. And Jesus used his power not to benefit but to serve. Son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many, Mark tells us in chapter 10 and verse 45. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And that's what I learned from Jotham. These things that took place were wrong, but Jotham had a confidence that God would make it right. And what's really fascinating to me is you wouldn't know it immediately. It comes quickly, but you wouldn't know it immediately. But God brings about his judgment in a providential way. Jotham doesn't have to try to do all that is necessary to bring vengeance. God will make it happen. Judgment comes upon the one who ruled wickedly and on those who participated with him in that rule. That's why I see with the Shechemites. Those who stand behind, those who participate in wickedness also participate in the guilt and in the punishment. That text is here. And, and, and all right, I'm just going to say it. Is it not true? And we haven't even gotten to the slaughter of the innocents yet, but I'll, I'll say that and probably quit. But the slaughter, the, the government came into being by the slaughter of innocent people. When innocent people are slaughtered for government to rule or control, God's going to reckon with that. And I have to tell you, in a day when we're looking at the possibility of government-supported abortion, we got some hard decisions to make. Because if we participate in the murder of innocents, this text ought to make us really uneasy. God did not let that pass. Okay, let me say this in conclusion. To believers, is it possible that we as believers have placed too much trust in government? Is it possible that we have expected more of government than we should have, or to put it in different terms, have we placed more trust in government than in God? Have we expected that if we had a majority in Congress or whatever it might be, the right man in the White House, that somehow we were going to make things right? Our trust better be in Jesus because he's going to come and he is going to make it right. But it is possible that we as Christians 
have fallen prey to the same wrong thinking, and that is we look for government to do what only God can do. We should beware. Secondly, for believers, how easy it is to forget. That was what Israel's problem was. They forgot. They forgot the good things that Gideon had done, but most of all, they forgot that every deliverance was from God. Every deliverance was from God. Do you, do you think it's accidental that we are instructed by our Lord to remember the Lord's death every week? We're celebrating the fact that he has achieved our deliverance. And I'm telling you, sometimes a week is not often enough. We need to remember constantly that our deliverance is only from God. And for unbelievers, if there's anybody here who has never personally acknowledged their sin and their need for a Savior, and they've never trusted in Jesus as the one who died in their place for the forgiveness of their sins, then I have to say to you, there is only one deliverer. There is only one deliverer. And he is the God of the new covenant. He is the one who changes hearts of stone and makes them into hearts of flesh. He is the one who sent his son to bear our sins. And he is the one who can give forgiveness and deliverance when no one else will. And he is coming again. And all power will be in his hands and all corruption will be dealt with in a decisive way. Father... Thank you for this text. I thank you for Jotham and for his courage to stand against uh, an evil government at an evil day. Thank you for your faithfulness to your people even when they were not faithful to you. Help us, Father, to be wise as we look to the future and we look with apprehension at the way in which our nation And those who govern us are turning from you. Help us to trust in you and to be faithful to proclaim the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.